today's special episode of VFM, we're talking to Lord Willits, former Conservative Minister and President of Resolution Foundation and author of The Pinch. Hello and welcome to the first special episode of VFM in 2024. And as usual, I couldn't be happier to be joined by my co-host, the one and only Nico Aspinall. Hello, Darren. Hello. Our first special. Uh, it's fantastic to be back with you. Obviously, uh, we had a bit of a pause, but we've, we're going to be doing three in two weeks. So uh, well, yeah, we, we had a we had a well deserved break over Christmas, I think. You know, <laughs> which did. was which was good. And we 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 you know this is a this is the first special of the year. Yeah. And we are delighted, absolutely delighted, to be joined by Lord David Willits, or as his Wikipedia entry says, <laughs> Baron Willits of Havant. Um, I used to go to Southampton University, so oh. that's quite close to Haven, I think. Yeah, so, um, and and Lord Willits, you served as Minister of State for Universities and Science um, under the coalition government until July 2014, I think it was. And you were also in John Major's government as well, um, yeah. including a stint as Paymaster General. And I know that title very well because I um, spent some time at the Treasury um, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as an economist. Um, I don't right. think we overlapped at all. Um, but yeah, it's a, I think it was a joint treasury um, cabinet office post, That's um, right. if, if yeah. I remember at the time. And you were ennobled in 2015, joining the yeah. House of Lords. Um, and also, um, you're chair of the UK Space Agency's board and got appointed to that in April 2022. And you're president of the Resolution Foundation. Welcome yeah. to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be with you guys. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's on topic for the uh, the podcast, but uh, as Darren knows, I'm a, I'm a big fan of science and I was a physicist at university. So if we can talk about space agency at some stage, that would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this week um, we'll be, uh, this is a special episode, so we're not going to be doing the news. Um, so we've got a regular episode that I think we'll be publishing uh, on Friday with Chris Curry. I should also say, it's a very special week, isn't it, Darren? Because in between in between us recording now and on Friday, you're going to be having a very special birthday. Oh, uh, on Friday itself. Isn't uh, it? On Friday itself, yes. I'm yeah. turning 30, Nico. 30. <laughs> big round numbers. Yeah, big round number. I, I, you know, I, I hit that half century. So um, yeah, look, looking forward to that. Um, well, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast at this time. So, you know, get some hints and tips from um, the master himself. So... <laughs> Um, so yeah, let's go straight into discussion with with, with you, David. We, uh, as I say, we, we, we might otherwise have done the news, but um, yeah, could you tell us a bit about yourself? How did you get into politics? What was it? What was it that sort of took your career that way? Well, that's a good question. So I began my career actually as a as a Treasury official, hmm. uh, with doing the civil service exam and working in the Treasury, and then I was uh, poached to go and work in the number 10 policy unit. This mm -hmm. was in Margaret Thatcher's heyday in the mid-1980s. Uh, I was officially a Treasury official on secondment. And at the end of my uh, three years with Mrs. T, I then had the big decision to take. I was then 30. 
and I could have gone back to the Treasury and resumed my career as an official. But I actually thought, you know, I I don't just want to be a backroom boy. I think mm. I want to get involved and publicly take responsibility for things and make the case for things. So after having my spent my 20s as an official in the Treasury at number 10, my wife thought she was marrying a career civil servant. <laughs> I instead resigned from the civil service, went off and ran a think tank, Centre for Policy Studies, mm. Mm. Then in 1992, got elected. So, so I would say it was um, it was it was Margaret Thatcher who really got me seriously into politics. Yeah, she was a she was a huge figure. I mean, what can you remember? If you were, were you quite junior at the time? Did she, did she notice you? Were you uh, quite quite close to her? Or? Well, of course, in those days, number ten was actually quite small. I mean, she had a private office of five or six people. She had a, a press office of uh, a few people. Then there was. Uh, eight of us in the policy unit. Yeah. And I was responsible for you. And we each kind of briefed her in a particular area. And I tended to do treasury, though the head of the unit, John Redwood, then Brian Givers also did treasury. I did what was then the DHSS. Mm. Looking back, it was a different world, health and social security, all together in one department. <laughs> yeah. And Margaret Thatcher's first ministerial job had been Parliamentary Secretary for National Insurance. Yeah. And she remained, she was very interested in national insurance and she wouldn't take advice from you unless she felt you knew your stuff. Mm. And so for the first few months, she was peppering me with questions. So exactly how many years do you have had to work before you get full unemployment benefit? <laughs> um, what is the home responsibility protection in the basic state pension? And after I had got my head around all this stuff, I was then... I built it, I set myself, a, re a good working relationship with her. Mm -hmm. And because I didn't necessarily think I was going to go into politics at that stage, I wasn't a sort of minister anxious about the next reshuffle. So I actually had very good open conversations with her and disagreed with her and everything because the pressure was off. I was just a, I was just a 28-year-old doing a couple of years there for her, working for her. Um, I can remember an argument we had when I was writing a speech for it. She took me to the House of Commons canteen as we were working on the speech. And um, I put on my tray, I reached out and got a bottle of Perrier water. And she took uh, she took a bottle of sparkling Malvern water. Right. She said, David, David, why are you having Perrier? And I said, well, uh, why not? And she, why wasn't she having her, her, her water? And I said, well, because the bubbles in Perrier are natural. Hmm. She said, uh, no, then, David. And I said, yes, yes, they are. The, the It's not like carbonated. And I realised there was no MPs around. I was standing there in the queue having a row with the Prime Minister about whether or not <laughs> the bubbles in Perrier were natural. Or I was <laughs> right, Prime Minister. I guess you must be right. And I checked <laughs> afterwards, and she was kind of half right. But yeah. <laughs> it was, so I, I, oddly enough, if you were didn't have the pressures of being a elected minister in her government in some ways it made it easier for me mm. Mm. And, and did she ever ask you to calculate um accrual rates under the state earnings related pension you know if, you, if yeah. she's really testing your talents then that, that would have been somewhere to go wouldn't it it would have been anti-franking surely that yeah, would be the ultimate test we, we of course serps was a live topic mm. um we didn't get into accrual rates, but I will tell you another. Shall I tell you another pension? Yes, yeah, please do. Yeah. I'll tell you another pension. The cabinet committee. This was when, or maybe it was cabinet. Anyway, she was in the chair, and Nigel Lawson was chancellor, and she wanted basically her idea was uh, 
get rid of, I think she might even want to get rid of SERPs altogether. But anyway, just oblige people have compulsory private pensions. Mm. She said oh, we, should, we should just oblige everyone to save, like they do in Australia, as we know. Mm. And uh, uh, Nigel, Nigel Lawson, has char- he was then at the height of his powers, and he was so smart and quick-witted. She said, Nigel, uh, Nigel, we should do it. It's what they do in Switzerland, to which Nigel said, quick as a flash. She, yes, she said, they have compulsory saving in Switzerland. We should do it. To which he said, but Margaret, in Switzerland, everything which isn't forbidden is compulsory. She dropped the idea. So, that was, you know, so, yeah, they were, and of course, having worked for, I'd worked for Nigel as a private sector before in Treasury. So they were both very... Uh, impressive, um, you know, smart people. And this was the mid when in some ways they were at the height of their powers. So, so 1992 was a really interesting point at which to get elected because a lot of people thought that there was going to be a change of government around that time. And um, it was quite a surprise, if I remember correctly, that, you know, John Major um, actually managed to hold on to power and, um, you know, keep on with, you know, five more years. It was, about, yeah, and I was newly elected. I got elected for the first time for Havant, down mm. on the South Coast, where we still live. Um, and it was be, it had the great honour of um, representing Havant. And um, though my count, I can remember from my count, we had a, quite a short mayor who was doing the results of the count. And it was on, it was in the local kind of recreation centre, you know, where people with their sort of stage. And he took a couple of steps back and fell off the back of the stage so we could only see his head off the left of the stage. It's the main thing I remember from my first election announcement. Uh, what was it the, uh, was it the surprise or the shock of you um, winning <laughs> uh, well it was um it was just a moment of kind of absurdity but when we got, I got elected and of course then uh backbenchers want to be on select committees but partly mm. because I've been working on it before I applied to and became a member of the Social Security Select Committee, then mm. chaired by the great Frank Field. Well, so wow. worked under Frank as a member of his Social Security Select Committee. Yeah. And, and then he would... you were brought into the government. Yeah. And then joined the government, first of all, as a whip and oh. uh, then as paymaster general in the, in the cabinet office. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So um, you're probably best known to our listeners um, for um, a lot of the work that you've done on intergenerational issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you wrote a book called The Pinch, um, you know, which is discussing, you know, the whole topics of intergenerational equity and, you know, the challenge faced by younger generations. Yeah. I'm going to have to tell my kids not to listen to this particular version <laughs> of the podcast, not that they do anyway. Um, before we sort of get into some of the detail behind that, can you can you just tell us sort of how you got interested in, in some of these big... Um, intergenerational macro issues. Well, I I tell you why how I got into it, and it was because partly by choice and partly the accidents of politics and reshuffles and everything. I ended up spending quite a lot of my time, uh, both in government and in shadow cabinet, working either on education policy or mm. on pensions policy. Mm. And if you've and what they have in common is they're both kind of, in general, transfers from taxpayers to deliver services. Kind of classically, you might think of one for young people, one for old people. And for me as a conservative who thought that 
just thinking of the welfare state as rich people paying taxes to give to poor people didn't actually capture the full nature of the welfare state. Mm. Um, you are you instead, especially as I began my career in the treasury, then working on pensions, then working on education. You think of it as much more crudely a bunch of people in their middle years, their highest earning years, paying taxes to deliver services to people who tend to be either kids or old people. Yep. And you, that helps. And I personally think that way of thinking of the welfare state and indeed thinking of government is a really powerful way. So I think also a lot of what goes on in wider society. And of course, you then realise that if at any one point there is that transfer from that worker to these other generations, also through the life cycle, he or she will also be a recipient. And it kind of, in theory, it balances out. And I describe this in my book, The Pinch, you know, in the most primitive um, uh, hunter-gatherer societies, there's, when they look at, they don't even have money. Think of calories. Um, what do you find? You find kids are net calorie consumers, as every parent knows. They consume more calories than they produce. And, and a lot more than calories, I can assure you, Lord Willits. <laughs> <laughs> but they are they're net users of calories generated for them by other people. Then there are people in middle age, and there's probably at this very moment someone deep in the forest uh, somewhere who is a 40-year-old staggering back to the encampment with four fish that he's caught that day, mm. only one of which he's going to eat himself, and the other three are going to go to other members of his family, thinking, why the bloody hell am I doing all this? <laughs> so there's a time when you're a net calorie producer, mm. and then, of course, when you're older, you're a net calorie consumer again. So you mm. realise that, and I quote the great economist Samuelson, on this, what looks at any one moment like a transfer from yourself to other people is equally a device for smoothing out your own consumption across the mm. life cycle. Yeah. And if we were born fully able to generate our own calories for ourselves from the moment we were born until the moment of our death, I don't think you would have human society, let mm. alone. So when you've got those basics, you then think, okay, that's the stable model. That's how economists think of it. But what can disrupt it? What can break those contracts? What can break those exchanges? How can they become unfair? And what I, one of the core arguments in the book is being a very big generation can unbalance them. Mm. Yeah, and that's, yeah. And, and that's the baby boomers. Yeah, because, of course, another way of thinking, I think a really good question for your podcast, if I may, is if you were given a choice between being born in a big cohort or being born in a small, small cohort, what would you choose? And the, I think the obvious kind of common sense answer, which is also where the demographers have been historically, is must be better to be in a small cohort, you know, basically mm. travel through life, business class, not economy mm. class, fewer yep. people, uh, fewer people competing in the housing market, fewer people mm. achieving the jobs market, be a nice small cohort and have a bit of luxury. Well, my, the core argument in a way of the pinch is actually in a modern market democracy, the opposite appears to be the case. Mm. Being a big cohort works to your advantage, mm. works to your advantage, partly because in a market economy, there are lots of you consumers. It's why the Rolling Stones are still on tour. It's why you <laughs> see a car called a Mini and a car called a Beetle. You know, they're, they're, in other words, the you shape the market around your tastes. And mm. secondly, you vote for policies that work for your cohort. Yeah. So I've mm. said, actually, doesn't matter. It doesn't mean people have been individually evil. It so happens that big post-war baby boom, 
those people have been able to shape Britain to our advantage. Yeah, mm. because we're so big and powerful. And there must have been other sort of economic things going on at the same time. Obviously, there's the kind of reconstruction effort after the war. Uh, there was a sort of maybe a technological liberalism coming over from particularly the US as well. Are those sort of other kind of uh, tailwinds kind of floating in that generation's golden generation? Or is there, do, do, do you think they're sort of incidental? Well, there were lots of, of course, that we're talking about, and of course, we're very clear about our terms. I tend to think of the baby boom. There's no sort of official definition, but I basically think of them as born 1945 to 1965. Mm-hmm. And within that, there's actually two peaks in Britain. There's the people born immediately after the war in kind of 47, and mm-hmm. then the people, the second um, particular surge in 63, 64. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had post-war, post-war reconstruction, yeah, was a which was done by their parents, mm. not by the kids, um, did work massively in our favour as, as as boomers, yes. Though, and equally, the boomers did fight for much more liberal values than our parents. So, mm. and that's why boomers in some way, I always say that sort of the cultural divide is between boomers and their parents and actually i think in many ways culturally boomers having led the great liberalization are kind of often not that dissimilar in their cultural attitudes to the people younger than them so the cultural Mm. divide between boomers and their parents the economic divide is between boomers and their kids Mm. that's where the um and it's clear that we've had amazing advantages in getting stuff on the housing ladder and Mm. having different benefit pensions which our kids don't enjoy Mm. so so, so you're very clear on, um, you know, what the issue actually is, yeah? yeah. And and your book sort of goes into that in a in a, in a lot of detail. Um, what can we do about it? <laughs> well, um, the there's lots of different. I mean, and I do think it's obviously uh, we've got to go one step forward in, in analysing it. It is it's both an income effect, so it's things like how the jobs market works, mm. how benefits work. Um, and you can set things right there. But it's also then an asset effect and the two big mm-hmm. assets, both housing and pensions. But, I mean, work we've done at Resolution shows, sadly, that, you know, compared with basic price protection, um, and I have to say, you know, I was in the coalition cabinet and I remember the discussions with with things like the triple lock, benefits for pensioners have gone up by more than inflation, mm-hmm. whereas benefits for families and children slightly depends on circumstances but on average if anything have been cut below inflation mm. and that is a kind of policy choice to help um older people now we have an obligation to older people i'm not a generational warrior i, I mean almost uh, uh respect for uh, pensioners and we all have obligations to pensioners but the there's a picture, a conventional picture of kind of pensioners that's all poor. And we show at Resolution Foundation that actually the after housing costs, the median and allowing for household size, the median pensioner now has incomes as, as an income as good as, if not slightly better than a family of working age. Uh, and, he, and the poorest 20% of pensioners, if anything, are slightly better off than the poorest 20% of families. Mm. So, mm. you know, when I started on all this, Poor meant being a pensioner, and being a pensioner meant being poor. 
That is just yeah. no longer the case in yeah. many ways with social progress. But we've got to catch up when we design today's policies with that new reality. Mm. You, you, you mentioned the triple lock, and I was head of the pensions team um, at the time in the Treasury at the time of the coalition government. And I have to say, it was probably the most expensive policy that ever got waved through the Treasury, at yep. li lightning fast because it was so political. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and 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 you'll remember from your times at the Treasury that you know Treasury doesn't really like spending money. You yep. know, any any excuse not to. But I'd, I'd never seen something happen so quickly. Um, one of the rationales behind the triple lock was, um, you know, yes, yes, it was a promise. It was a political agreement. But, you know, we had the lowest um, state pension in, in Europe, the lowest state pension in the OECD, you know, um, the, the, the uprating of prices rather than earnings um, for, for quite a long time, you know, meant the value of that state pension had fallen back. Um, do, do you think that's now corrected or do you think there's still something in that sort of foundational state support? And and, and what do you think it means for the future of the state pension in, and, and the future of the triple lock? Yeah, well, there's a lot of big questions there. First of all, there is, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I always thought the, the, the linking of the basic state pension to prices under Mrs. T, which the Treasury always counted as a sort of permanent saving. I always thought at some point the rubber band, the brick on the end of the rubber band would come back and hit us. Yeah. Uh, there was a, the end. So I'm not surprised. And I understand the case that there was a need for a reset and to shift the basic state pension to a higher value relative to earnings. And I would argue that, that that's a legitimate kind of adjustment argument, but the reset has basically been done. Mm -hmm. That's why this evidence on what's happened to pensioner incomes compared with, with other social groups matters. So I think, yeah, okay, you wanted to correct for a period when it was too low, we've done that adjustment. And then in future, you can have, we could probably with some smoothing and everything, link it, link pensions basically to earnings in the future, mm -hmm. I think would be a, a sensible way forward. There was another argument, and I did raise it in Canada, and I remember discussing with David Cameron, because I'd already brought out the pinch, and um, and I was, and I did express my concern about it. And the other point he made, which is very relevant today, was, look, interest rates are now at historically low levels. Mm. There are old ladies out there who've got, you know, £10,000 in the Halifax Building Society, and the interest on that used to be quite useful. Mm. And after the financial crash, and we lowered interest rates to, to so low, that's basically not worth anything for her. We've got to help her out, that kind mm. of argument. And the so the other argument, I think, would be that the rise in interest rates, return, if you like, to more conventional levels of interest rates, has generated a new source of income, a very large, because, of course, um, basically, higher interest rates help savers, tends mm. to be older people, mm. and hits borrowers, tend to be younger people. Mm. So there's another, you could argue it was correcting also for a period when the borrowers were having an unusually good deal and savers having an unusually bad deal. But now, depending how you calculate it, one estimate we've done here at Resolution is there's an extra £36 billion a year of income on savings deposits flowing into households, particularly older people. Mm. So when you've done the reset relative to earnings and wider incomes, and you've ended the period when interest rates were artificially low, I think you don't need to carry on the triple lock any longer. So, yeah. so politically, how do you how do you get that through? Um, well, because every, every autumn, every whenever they, you know, the, the budget, uh, big budget announcements seem to have moved to the autumn statements now. Uh, but but you know, there's always some sort of maybe testing of the waters. 
Um, and then the Chancellor stands up and continues with the triple lock. So, so can, can we put this in a manifesto? Is this ever going to become an election issue that could be electable? So, so just before you answer that, uh, Lord Willits, um, I just cast my ba- mind back to Theresa May. Um, and when there was a lot of discussion um, ahead of the election that she called around social care, yeah. you know, which is a discussion that needed to happen. Yeah. But blimey, um, I think that sort of really dented the majority. I know. I know that was terrible. That was so frustrating. And it was badly prepared and rushed through. And it was basically trying to do the right thing because we just don't have the resource. If 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 people do have significant assets, it's reasonable for them to expect to use some of them to pay for social care, I think. Mm-hmm. Um so on this one, on the triple up, my, I tell you, my I, I have a plan. It is yeah. a totally naive and over-optimistic plan. But my plan is quite simply that the, the at the moment, the government is bound by a pledge in the last manifesto. Mm-hmm. You know, governments should honour their pledges. I'm hoping that the pledge is not repeated in the Conservative manifesto and doesn't appear in the Labour manifesto. Mm-hmm. have a kind of mutual disarmament that neither mm-hmm. party promises it because it is so expensive and they can see how limited resources are going to be. Um, mm. And look, I think, you know, we Tories, we we have a lot of arguments about the size of the state. There's also an argument about the shape of the state yeah. and a state. We, the British state is increasingly dominated by two overwhelmingly large items of expenditure, pensions and the NHS, mm. which is largely a service for older people. Of course, it helps everyone and it's a wonderful thing. But a we're ba- you know you talk about the nanny state. This is a state for nannies. This is a state <laughs> where everything else is being cut back, so that we can deliver high benefits and large um, uh, tax finance services for older people. And meanwhile, mm. everything from defence uh, gets back gets cut back to to many other services and local services. So uh, I th- I hope neither party repeats a a. a triple lock pledge in their manifestos because the triple lock actually i will move on from the triple lock because there's so much more to speak about but it was a lib dem um, manifesto commitment i think back in 2010 and it formed part of the coalition agreement and then um so so you 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 say neither party you hope that neither party neither labor nor um and the Tories um, include it in their manifesto. But there are potential scenarios where, you know, other parties adopting this as their manifesto commitment, given that we know older people vote and they vote often and, you know, the, the way our electoral system is is worked. That could, it's almost a game of locking other parties into spending commitments, isn't it? Yeah, there is, yeah I mean, you're right. And I, um, and it is, and this is where the, the voting power matters this is where my original point about being a big cohort mm. uh, it's not because it's a baby i'm not sort of look i'm a baby boomer myself i don't think we're particularly evil people we're no better and no worse than anyone else but the um it's just a number of us and you can do various estimates but for every boomer voting in who's for every sort of younger pensioner, every person voting in their late 60s 70s um actually voting now uh, now i have to uh, I believe these are the figures we'd estimated them once. You've got something like 550,000 other people of exactly your age voting. Mm. For every 30 year old, 25 year old voting, you may have 400, 420,000 people voting. Now, that's partly because they're a smaller cohort. Mm. And people say, ah, oh, but they don't bother. They should be voting. They just don't bother. When you look into it, 
the lower rate of voting is almost entirely accounted for by the fact that they're very likely to be in private rented accommodation and move around a lot, whereas older people are more likely to be owner-occupiers and stable and easily getting onto the electoral register. Mm. Low participation by younger voters is almost entirely accounted for by different patterns of household tenure. Not motivated, cavalier, disengaged. It's just if you move where you're living every year, well, Mm. in your 23rd, is getting on the register and the electoral register is harder. So if you've got a small co a smaller cohort that then finds it harder to get onto the register because they're not even owner occupiers, that weakens the power of the younger, smaller, younger generation. And that's of, and that's reinforced through the electoral system and just and just how we operate in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um I, I, I knew we were going to talk about housing at some point, but I did not know that we were going to talk about housing and owner ownership yes. in, 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 in that perspective. I think that's it an absolute. It's certainly a massive relief for me when, when sort of, you know, the dust settled over my 20s and 30s. And, you know, we, we arrived here, still a building site. Uh, but, <laughs> but, yeah, not have to kind of tell whichever new council that I'm, I'm here to get on yeah. the, the roles. No, it's a really good point. Uh, just before we leave the triple lock, because, <laughs> because oh. I, 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 you know, I, Darren and I um, uh, do talk to a lot of people about pensions, and something that I quite routinely hear from my friends is that the state pension won't exist by the time they come to retire. And I do wonder if the sort of cost narrative of the triple lock has led people to think that the state pension itself is unsustainable. And I think we know that that's politically impossible, right? We, we, we can't get yeah. rid of this thing. Um, that there is this sort of overhang. Do you, do you think, in your analysis, does that intergenerational uh, transfer does that include the sort of confidence mechanisms and the sort of trust in the state mechanisms? Do they, do they come into the, to, the, to the story here? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very interesting point that Nico, because I agree they do say this, and um, I, I think it's it's a mis it's a misconception. Of course, it is the case, and we should make this. And in, in fact, in defence of of David and George and the triple lock. The one thing we have had is increases in the pension age. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways they funded the triple lock was speeding up the increase in the pension age, which itself created a grievance, especially amongst some of those um, women, uh, female pensioners in their, in their, uh, in their sixties, early sixties. So we've had a, we've had increases in the pension age and uh, as you know, live topic, but could well mm. carry on. And another one of my arguments is actually we shouldn't just think of setting the pension age as entirely a kind of arithmetical calculation rated linked to life expectancy. It's mm. also legitimate to have a fiscal consideration, how much we're spending mm. on the pension. If we want to spend more per pensioner, then probably it's another argument for trying to raise the pension age and lower the total number of pensioners to we have that obligation. Mm. And I, I think it's wrong to have got into this mindset now that it's just a read-off from life expectancy. Yeah. Uh, but, and means testing? Does means testing come to that? Well, we've had... Of course, we did have, and um, Steve Webb, my friend, whom I have great respect, when Steve and I used to, uh, the late Alistair Darling as a pension secretary, me as the shadow secretary of state, Steve as the Lib Dem pensions. Those were when you had proper pensions debates. In <laughs> proper politicians. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we have now got the new single tier mm-hmm. pension. I would say, if you look at the detail and Steve is the master of the detail much more than me. But when I did get my head around it, it looks pretty clear that what's really happened is that the 
current pensioners, boomer pensions, do very well out of the single tier pension mm. by having lots of extras consolidated into it for them. Yeah. And the younger pensioners, a cruel of what they've been doing is not so favourable. So there is mm. actually a bit of a generational transfer mm. hidden in it, which um, was uh, not talked about much, but I think is a feature of it. Well, no, well, we'll, we'll be talking about it in that in a couple of weeks, um, Lord Willips, because yeah. um, Sir Steve is on the podcast, so we All can right. put that very question good. to him. Very good. <laughs> Uh, but look, I think we've there was a point when we had too many pensioners um, uh, eligible for means testing benefit, mm. you know, yeah. claiming pension credit or not claiming it. But again, that's another adjustment that's been made. The new higher level single pensioner has reduced the amount of means tested. So mm -hmm. you could argue, you know, you declare victory. You've adjusted the basic value. You've caught up with earnings. You've reversed the spread of means testing. You've covered pensioners for the period when in interest rates were very low declare mm. victory that was all right but no longer relevant mm. for the world we're entering now it'd be, yeah. um, it'd be really interesting to see how this debate pans out if at all um mm. over the next year or so um putting this the state pension um to to one side um could we just sort of pick up on that housing point um and you know like uh, there's there's a narrative which is um really difficult for young people to get on the housing ladder um you know multiples of salary levels of deposit needed um you know big housing crisis um which is just storing up a, a renting generation and yeah. and we know from works work that resolution foundation pensions policy institute and others have done that you know if you're renting in retirement that's a cost you can do without in a well, way um just yeah. to simplify it you know what what role does housing play in your analysis and 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 what do you think needs to happen you know, when it comes to sort of housing policy and how we use housing assets to try and tackle some of these big challenges. Yeah, and housing housing and pensions, including funded pensions, are, are two of the great examples of all this. Look, we've we've um I mean the starting point is the is the crude and obvious one. We've just not built enough housing. Mm. Given the the rate of household formation, our, our house building rates have been too low. And that gets into everything from how the planning system works um, through to the types of housing that are being built and where it's being built. And, and again, in our most recent big economy report, um, ending stagnation, we show both the housing and other things like business investment. One of the striking things about Britain in the last 50 years is how much, how little extra land is built on compared with most other advanced Western countries. Mm. We keep thinking we're concreting over England, actually compared to almost anyone else, the rate of, concretization is rather low so we've got to get more houses built but i do think there's also some issues on the financing side and this is where the generational perspective helps so when the boomers were young and we were taking out our first mortgage um mortgage regulation was pretty light actually mm -hmm. and i suspect if one inquired very closely into lots of boat boomer mortgage applications you might have um, found people were playing fast and loose with some of the rules and would were, were getting started now after the especially after the financial so once that generation instead of being borrowers taking out mortgages become savers who want their financial assets to be secure you shift from a very liberal mortgage regime that we enjoy as boomers when we're borrowing 
to a highly regulated, prudentially oriented mortgage regime, which we enjoy as savers. So then suddenly the prospectus becomes, well, how do we protect our savings? We can't have lots of people mm-hmm. going bust in negative equity and losing out on the value mm-hmm. of the, of the uh, uh, losing out on the asset of the mortgage. So the mortgages, mortgage borrowing is much more heavily regulated than it mm-hmm. used to be now. And I am in the group that thinks, if anything, we have over-regulated and there were people in the period when um, uh, interest rates were low, you know, the 15 years, of low, who were paying more in rent than they would have had to pay servicing a mortgage, but mm. still couldn't meet the regulatory requirements for taking out a mortgage. Mm. And my yeah. is that was that's a case study in overregulation. And okay, we're now reverted to a slightly more usual world, but nevertheless, I I think also a bit more flexibility for lenders especially as people move jobs more often and move accommodation more often, um, a, a, a more flexible regulatory regime for mortgages as well. Yeah. I mean, is there something also, so I think it's in the, uh, sorry, is it called Ending Stagnation Report about the productivity of second cities yeah. and the sense of where those houses need to be built. Um, so, so maybe to get you to comment a little bit on that. And then, and then the other piece is just, so politically, house prices are a key barometer of people's kind of sense of the the economic welfare of the country. Um, so, you know, do we need a reset in house prices to, or is is that the natural result <laughs> of uh, a sensible building policy? Is that house prices should fall, or you know, how well, do those it's, into play? It's fast. It's fascinating. One of those great news stories. One um, high house prices. Is that good news or bad news? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, house prices falling. Um, mm. Good news, bad news. So uh, I do think that one of the uh, and, and houses and it's oddly enough, pe- the value of our pensions wealth and the value of our housing wealth are v- very similar. The rough the rough figures aren't aren't um, far out, but the the um, I do think that for housing um, we do need to promote more house building. And in our big, in our second cities, in those two, in those twin cities of Manchester and Birmingham, mm. one reason why, sadly, their productivity and wages fall significantly behind London is they're not the the travel to work area. They're not uh, is not big enough. They're not enjoying mm. the being the benefits of being a big city with an integrated labour market and lots of skilled professionals enjoying the agglomeration effects of all working together. And that's yeah. part of the things that like not investing in enough good quality housing and not investing in enough radial transport connections Mm -hmm. to make them big functioning cities. There was an excellent paper comparing Birmingham and Lyon. The number of people in Lyon that can get to the centre of Lyon within half an hour, double that number of people can get to the centre of Birmingham in half an hour. So turning them into a key part of our our recent economic inquiry report, absolutely, is turning them into dynamic, integrated, uh, large urban areas. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously... Uh, transport policy has been a bit disjointed, let's say, over the last yep. few years. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, uh, so high speed two is that? Does that come into your thinking? Obviously, the the, the non high speed two <laughs> or the the first leg. <laughs> well, I think you know, it's I think it's a it's a a pity. It's a great pity what has what has happened because after so much effort, at least it's going to mm. come go to Birmingham. I was brought up in Birmingham. At least it's going to get to Birmingham. Um, but the um, now the, the the challenge now is I expect after that to see if there are ways in which you can still get further up north. Yeah, mm. 
Mm. Yeah, so it's, I used to work, uh, so half my team was at Towers Watson were up in Leeds, uh, and they were very worried about High Speed 2 on the basis that I think the legal profession of the North is Leeds and all the businesses of Manchester. And if you make it quicker for the, the Manchester businesses to get to the legal profession of London than it does yeah. to Leeds, then essentially you're, you're, you're risking the whole reason of Leeds. Um, so very much more support for a Transpennine link yeah. um, than... than can I just go back there? Because I didn't properly mm. answer your earlier question. And look, the I actually think if you the most important, probably the most second, I think the most significant economic indicator of how Britain has changed is that back in the 1980s, when I was working for Margaret Thatcher, our total assets, which is mainly housing and pensions, total household wealth was about three times national income. Mm. Um, and now it's probably fallen back a bit now it's about seven times national income. And when your wealth is so much high, is so high relative to your income, it means that acquiring an asset from your earnings, working to save, to own your own home or build out a pension has become a lot harder. And mm. we focused on housing in that conversation, but in some ways it's even more dramatic on pensions. As I say, roughly they've got the same kind of, value six billion or so um at least the houses carry on existing even if all people stay in them for a long time even if they're harder to buy though especially defined benefit pensions um essentially are an asset that um the boomers have voted for ourselves and there is no such asset available for our for the generation after us and instead Many of them, the money they're putting into their defined contribution pension pots is nothing like the value of the defined benefit yeah. pension. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and, that, and that's a really nice segue into, you know, we've, 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 had, we've, we've talked a lot about housing, we've talked a lot about um, inequality and the state pension and that, but this is a DC podcast, defined <laughs> contribution <laughs> podcast. So, you know, we've, we, we've had the introduction of auto enrolment, you know, yeah. so um, that's really, you know, that, that, that cross party political consensus to to get more people saving more has been you know probably one of the big social science successes or social experiment successes of the last 20 30 years or so and um you know that was the work of the turner commission and others in mm. terms of driving that forward was just amazing yeah um but we now need to sort of get more money into people's pensions Yes, yeah, because um, eight percent of band earnings, um, you know, well being enough for some people isn't going to be enough for a lot of people. And one of the problems is that if you if your employer puts you into the, a pension because the government says that you've got to, then um, people think, oh, that's it, job done. I'm going to have enough when it comes to retire. What What do you see as some of the big challenges when it comes to encouraging pension saving in the UK, and how can we build on the success of auto enrolment? Yeah. Well, first of all, I completely agree with your analysis. I think that I, I would I, I agree with you, Darren. And there is good news and bad news. The good news is we've got this um, widely shared framework of auto enrolment, and that is a fantastic opportunity. There's bad news is there's not enough money going into them. Mm -hmm. But I think we're so. What my view is we're halfway there, and there are various things that could be done incrementally. Uh, you could imagine increasing the exchequer contribution in return for expecting an increased contribution from employers. Um, you could envisage some 
liberalization of the regime. Certainly some of their savings was accessible for the purposes of putting down a deposit. Um, you could envisage perhaps putting money in um, uh, when people reach a certain age. I mean, one proposal we had in our intergenerational commission at Resolution Foundation is that at the age of 30, people should get a, a capital grant of £10,000, mm. um, just something to spread a bit of property ownership. And of course, mm. arithmetic, a typical cohort now of, say, 700,000 people, that's that's £7 billion a year, which is a which is you know, less than 1% of public spending. But you could say, we will start by putting that into your auto-enrolled pension. That could be the sort of first site for it, to mm. boost people's sense of what they've got in their pension. But then perhaps with some optionality that there are things you could withdraw it for, mm. such as deposit to buy a flat. Mm. Um, so I, I do think the good news is we've got a framework. And now the challenge absolutely is to uh, look, people have come up with lots of imaginative ideas, just get a bit more money into them. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and what about the link between the way that pensions capital is, is deployed uh, and UK growth? Because I, you know, I, I think the Finance for the Future uh, report is talking about the UK growth funds. Yes. Uh, I think it talks about the, the sort of super trusts. I can't remember if you pick up that language, but the sense of having some very large consolidated uh, schemes. Uh, you know, I guess part of the, the fear of pensions ministers and chancellors in the last, let's say, well, yeah, we're sort of 10, 10, 15 years, is that increasing contribution rates will essentially put the brakes on whatever growth we've got in the country. Does, does there a stop in terms of how that, where that capital goes and, you know, whether that's productivity investments or kind of innovative and venture capital investments? Is that, is that something that could sort of balance the scales for the, for the next chancellor when he's thinking about? Uh, accepting higher contribution rates. Well, I, I think that's a, a really important debate and a hot topic. And look, I, I, my view has shifted on this, and um, I do think that a, a key part of Britain's problem is we are a low savings country, mm. and when we do save, you know, the auto enrolled pensions. I think about of those contributions going in, about three quarters are invested abroad, yeah. and. <laughs> I think that's a great pity. I think it's a missed yeah. opportunity. Well, now, and, and the court of the UK is probably gifts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and look, I'm very aware, as soon as I, I'm immediately stepping into a minefield, what are the legal responsibilities of trustees? Should the yeah. legal responsibilities of trustees be different? To what extent can you require national investment? You don't want to have politicians deciding exactly where you spend the money. But the um, having... As, as a minimum, and as, as you know, Jeremy Hunt is working on this, consolidation. So we have fewer bigger pots which can devote some of that to investing in Britain and especially things like British technologies. I am someone who has also been heavily involved in science and technology policy. Mm. A number of times I found myself looking at a technology or an exciting startup or whatever, where the Ontario teachers pension scheme... Yep going to hold a big stake and you do sometimes think hang on why is it that ontario teachers are going to be enjoying the benefits of all this british innovation and we don't seem to have a british pension scheme on the same scale turning up and also investing mm. what have ontario teachers got that we haven't which i normally get told by the expert oh it's just bigger you know it's now yeah. big. so we need some bigger funds that can make the kind yeah. of pitches that ontario teachers can make this is a this is a, a key theme when it comes to value for money and it's been a key theme of this podcast um and 
you know, one, one of my frustrations is like we, we get the need for scale. Yeah. And there's there's all sorts of reasons for scale. And then the investment and the productive finance agenda is one. Um, what I would like is if if the politicians, um, you know, have got that vision, then create that vision. Yeah. And at the moment, it seems that we're sort of dancing around the issue a bit, putting additional yes. regulatory requirements here, additional re regulatory requirements there. Um, using very blunt instruments to force consolidation and try to force scale without just sort of biting the bullet, which wouldn't necessarily be um, very natural for the Conservative Party, uh, in all, honestly, in terms of an intervention, but just saying, right, there's going to be 10 pension schemes, yeah, and they're going to be 10 big ones. You know, why don't, why don't we regulate to have that outcome? Yeah, and look, I have recollections, you know, 10 years ago, I was sitting on a cabinet committee that was looking at um, I remember the uh, the item coming up, whether how we could combine local government pension schemes. So we had fewer bigger pension schemes. Mm. Look, ten years on, that still proved very hard to do. And again, it's because of the legal frameworks of trustees and, and everything. And to make it happen, you probably would need more primary legislation with a clearer power to override and, mm. and bring things together, which I do think would be in the interest of pensioners themselves. Mm. That's a portfolio management by their pension scheme and of the wider economy. Well, we shouldn't uh, leave our, our podcast without asking you the, the question we ask all of our guests, if we can if we come on to that. We sort of segued here, but uh, Lord Willis, David, what, what does value for money mean to you? I'll tell you what, I, I was thinking, I'll give you my answer. Value for money is the House of Lords. Ah, yeah, very good. If you want politics, if you want some genuine experts and proper scrutiny of legislation at um, relatively low cost, um, the expertise that's assembled in the House of Lords when, when a bill is going through and it's being scrutinised yep. is uh, significantly lower cost than the House of Commons. And in our niche, the, the, the elected chamber has to do the big strategy, set mm -hmm. the direction. It's not for the House of Lords to challenge that. If you want expert scrutiny of individual legislation, individual policy, the House of Lords scrutiny is value for money. And well, I think it's, it, it's, that, it's that expertise and mm -hmm. the attention to detail that I've you know, really noticed, um, yeah. especially when it comes to pensions. So you've got some amazing people that can really, you know, um, roll their sleeves up and, and, and get into the, the minutiae and the detail of the legislation. Mm. And that actually matters. You know, it can have a meaningly, meaningful impact on people's lives. So that's um, that's that's really important. So, so we, we, uh, we have the Gordon Brown suggested reforms of the House of Lords uh, or the sort of upper chamber, let's maybe call it. Yeah, you know what? What? What would your design be? Because, because I I, I, I hear the value for money argument and the kind of assembled expertise, but it also has some sort of dysfunctions as well. So I know you're a great reformer. I'm sure you've thought about it. Just give us a a couple of uh, a couple of bullet yeah. points of how to change it to to make it even better. Look, I, I think that having an elected second chamber is actually quite tricky because we haven't mm. got a written constitution and you'd mm. have to work out how you resolve. You'll have two groups of elected politicians and who has precedence and what happens when they disagree. Um, so I actually think that the, you know, having been an MP and having faced real electors, I'm very aware that my authority when I was an MP, quite rightly, in a modern democracy was far greater than what I have now as a, mm. a, a member, unelected member of the House of Lords. Um, but I think... You could, so I don't think you have an elected second chamber, but we have grown too large and we have grown quite elderly. Uh, I think people could be appointed for one 15 year term. 
Mm -hmm. yeah. um, say that's your time. That's when you try to pull your weight. You don't have to, you don't face re-election. You don't face reappointment. Do it 15 years and then you're off. Something like that. Mm -hmm. um, something that gives a little bit more replenishment and then some wider process of consultation on, on new appointments. Uh, I think that's better than trying to write an entire new constitutional settlement to resolve yeah. this in two yeah. democratic yeah, it's yeah. um, it's 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 not just a question as of whether the upper chamber should be elected or not. There's a whole host of stuff around that that would need to be um to be worked through. Um, mm. I'm really conscious of time, and you've been very generous with your mm. with your time. I've got I've got two final questions, and hopefully they're they're quick fire answers. Yeah, um, we we've sort of talked about what we don't want to be in uh, parties' manifestos when it comes to the next election, when it and, and on on pensions and aging society issues. Um, what would you like to see? in the manifestos, David? Old proposals to help younger people build up assets and spreading property any democracy, help them get started on the housing ladder, help them build up a pension. How about a capital grant for everyone on when they reach the age of 30? That's, um, it's almost we were, like we rehearsed that and we and we didn't at <laughs> we all which is um so so I, so I don't know if this is um it, it could be a similar it could be a different way of asking the same question yeah um but you, but the title of your book yeah was how how the baby boomers took their children's future you know and why they should give it back so if you were speaking to a baby boomer you know what would your key message be to why they should sort of i don't know like talk to my dad you know why he should sort of be giving me some of my inheritance now i would say look we were fortunate by what our parents did for us they built housing estates for us often on green fields they set up defined benefit company pensions for us and paid in and we have been the beneficiaries all we all we should be doing is be doing for our kids what our parents did for us. Excellent, and um, I will remind him of that um, when I'm trying to get him to buy me a pint the next time we go to a pub. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that Lord Willits, thank you very much. That we could have we could have carried on for yes. hours. Um, thank you for being so generous um, with your time. Really, really and and what a, what a fantastic episodes and. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Um, to our listeners, um, thank you for listening in. Uh, you can find us on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget, you can get in touch at vfmpensions at gmail.com. You've written the email address down this time. So I, I have, know, yeah. I, 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 usually, well I, I usually mess up the uh, email address. So, so um, who have we got coming up, Nico? Yeah, so uh, we'll be publishing two, uh, two episodes this week. So we've got Chris Curry, who's director of the Pension Policy Institute. Uh, and then next week, we're speaking to Sir Steve Webb, um, of course, the former pensions minister from the yeah. coalition. So already a fantastic start to 2024. Yeah. And I'm, and, and I'm going to have a close look at the single-tier state pension and the intergenerational <laughs> consequences. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so, very much darren thank you nico thank you both for having me on the on the show fantastic thank you very much thank you uh, and catch up soon thank you bye <laughs> thanks until bye. next time <laughs>